Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And with me as virtual host today are some fellow saloners who either made a direct donation to help with the expenses here in the salon or who bought a copy of my pay-what-you-can audiobook, my novel, The Genesis Generation, uh, whose proceeds also go to cover some of the costs of these podcasts. And these kind souls are Auden P., I think I'm pronouncing that right, A-U-D-U-N, Auden, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing it, Auden P., Roy T., and Dwayne C. Also, I want to once again thank my dear friends and patrons, Ron and Claudia, who have been here with me in the salon since even before my first podcast. And without their love and support these past years, well, these podcasts probably would never have taken place. So, Claudia and Ron, thank you again ever so much. And I should also mention that I truly appreciate all of the wonderful birthday greetings that so many of our fellow saloners sent to me via my Facebook page. In all my life, I've uh, never received so many happy birthdays, and in fact, you made me feel so good that I've decided to hang around again for another year or so, just so I can have another big day like that. And uh, I again want to thank Peter Gorman for providing this recording for us to uh, listen to here in the salon, and also to Hector Glass, who helped Peter rescue it from a hot Texas garage and then digitize it for us. So uh, thank you both ever so much. It was uh, really a great feeling for me to uh, get to hear Oscar's voice once again. Uh, I really appreciate that uh, you guys sent this to me. The person I'm talking about, of course, is Dr. Oscar Janiger, who moved on to his uh, next trip about, uh, well, 10 years ago this week. Now, in case this name uh, is one that you aren't really familiar with, uh, well, by way of introduction, I'll just give you the headline. During uh, the years 1954 to 1962 or thereabouts, Oscar, who uh, was a Los Angeles psychiatrist, gave LSD to somewhere around a thousand people, including many celebrities like Cary Grant and Jack Nicholson, just to name a few. It was really a monumental amount of early psychedelic research, and to state the obvious, well, no study even close to it has ever since been attempted. So, you can probably tell that I'm really excited about today's program as it features one of our elders who I was fortunate enough to get to know slightly during the years that turned out to be his uh, final years. And what we are about to listen in on is a telephone conversation between Dr. Oscar Janiger and Peter Gorman. And Peter conducted this back in 1993 while he was working on the High Times issue commemorating the 50th anniversary of the discovery of LSD. And on Peter Gorman's website, which I'll link to, you can find a copy of the interview that Peter did with Albert Hoffman for that anniversary issue. But I've done several searches and haven't found the other essays, including the one about Oscar that this interview is for. And when I get a chance, I'll ask Peter about this, but since this is the 10th anniversary week of Oscar Janiger's death, I thought that, uh, well, I'd get this out without uh, bothering to uh, track down that information for you first. Now, the reason I've given you all this background is to uh, kind of put the beginning of this interview in some kind of a perspective, uh, as you're going to hear in just a moment, 
At the time this interview took place, Peter was talking to a lot of people while preparing for the High Times edition that would feature articles about the discovery and the early days of research with LSD. So the tape uh, begins right where Oscar is in the middle of explaining to Peter why he most likely won't be able to get anyone from Sandoz Labs to talk to him about the story he was working on. My reason now for leaving this uh, little bit of pre-interview banner in is to remind our young Saloners who are just now entering into the world of big science uh, something that we've all learned elsewhere in our lives, and that is it doesn't matter how intelligent and sophisticated a group of people are that you may work with or play with, in the end, well, we're all humans who are struggling mightily to control our egos. And uh, can you just imagine what the world would be like if we didn't at least try to uh, hold these petty tyrants in check? Uh, Even though I, for one, seldom succeed, I should add. But enough of my ego talking here. Uh, It's time to put that little fellow away for a while and join Oscar Janiger as he tells Peter Gorman a little story about his own frustration in dealing with Sandoz Labs. President Sandoz International in Basel finally reached him. He said they had a policy of not contributing anything to uh, their scientists because they had employed such distinguished people they'd have a list a yard long. So that's an attitude. So I said, well, is there anything you guys can do for us? No, but we wish you luck and so on. So if you're looking for anything from them, I don't think you're going to get much, though. Uh, Just a thought. I was trying to nail him personally, you know. Who, Albert? Yeah. Well, Albert, yeah, but uh, we had talked with Albert in the past, and he said that he might go to Sandoz for some kind of whatever, publicity funds or to commemorate this, but after what I heard from Eklund, uh, uh, I don't know that uh, they're out to... to uh, in other words, he said if we show any preference for one of our people, the others will get very jealous. Can you imagine this on... This I'm talking to the second-in-command of the Sandoz. It tells me this. Well, they take themselves pretty seriously, I suspect. Yeah, well, you know, so I said, you know, these men, are, I said, they'll be jealous. I said, well, you should be proud of the people that, you know, that are working and work for you. He said, well, on one level, he said, on another, he said, we have to keep peace in the family. I said, well, that's okay. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to... <laughs> <laughs> now, Albert may have some way of doing this that I don't know, but I, I'd spoken to three. I spoke to Sandoz uh, America, the head of that. And then uh, these two people in uh, Basel, and so I, I don't know uh, whether they're going to be of much help. Yeah. Well, I suspect I'm not going to get anything from this. If, if you're not going to get anything yeah. from them, and they know who you are, I'm well, sure. sure. I'm not, uh, I, I went, pulled all my weight, gave them all my credentials. They thought it was an awfully good idea, but they, uh, they, they're a pretty tight-fisted group, I guess. So maybe he says that they'll incur jealousy, which never occurred to me, frankly. If they help one person over another, so yeah. I there may be you know this may be uh, there may be another door to get into, but uh, I don't know uh, you know other than that what to do. Yeah, yeah. So how could I be of any help? Well, I am uh, yeah. not to be too cute, but basically the story yeah. that I think is key to this yeah. is to paint a window pane picture of um, the LSD experience. Uh-huh. So I've been in touch with people. Uh, a, a number of people, and, and hopefully the list will grow from from each from the different areas of yeah. LSD experience. Yeah. Some like Tim Leary and, and Ram Das, just yeah. you know, who put it out there, and yeah. some new researchers like Rick Doblin, 
and uh, Humphrey Osmond, if you want to talk about... I'd love to are, be able to talk to Osmond. There are several generations, and I'm sure I don't have to tell you what the, how this is structured, but there have been several layers of people that were responsible through the years for their work in one way or another. And uh, that's on one de uh, definition. The other is on the people that did the laboratory work and kept relatively quiet, and those that were doing clinical work and were out in the front with people. So if you want, the, generally we people ask for those, the pioneers who were with people, not the pioneers in the laboratory because they constitute a different group. So if we break those down as to, say, all those before 1960 or 62, you still have a long, thin, gray line of about 12 or 15 people left who were active, reasonably active during that period. I'm just breaking it down for you. I hope I'm not, uh, not at all. giving Please. you too much information that Go ahead. you don't you need. Talk. I'm just so those, those are the key points. Then after that, oddly enough, Leary and the others come later than that first group. Sure. Yeah. That doesn't matter. I mean, I'm not saying each of them are important, but for general purposes of the context of this, that's about the way. And then, of course, obviously the ones before that who are now posthumous, like Sidney Cohen and Aldous Huxley, they would be in that original group that, who had since passed away. Right. So Laura Huxley's on my list. Laura, good. Laura and, is about, uh, and I'm of the old older statesman, so. Right. I'm and still Stanley remain, Groff you know, has promised to contribute. He's, <laughs> his, you know, and I'm hoping he will. Yeah. Oh, I, I'll have no problem and with Nina that. And Nina Boy suggests, uh, she said, well, you're not going to leave out Stanley, Stanley Krivner, are you? And I said, I don't really know who Stanley Kruger no. was. And he said, well, the Dream Lab. Yes. I said, oh, okay, I've read about the Dream Lab. Yeah. So I'm trying to get every, you know what I mean? I am yeah. trying to do, I well, think, the, just what the you The actual people that worked in LSD, I'm sure you know, they say six or eight people, of which in the, in the world maybe a dozen or 12 left. There are about five or six in the Americas that uh, would include uh, Humphrey Osmond, uh, Let's see who else is left. Uh, oh, um, Stan Groff, for example, mm -hmm. I think would be one of those heavy hitters. And uh, there would be uh, a man named Walter Houston Clark and a chap named Schultes, uh, who is at Harvard. Richard Schultes is a pal of mine. He's, I, 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 he's actually become... Uh, he's, a, he's a dear man. He's one of the nicest people. I've known him for years, and these are the, the old-time... Pioneers, the ones who were in the fire. And uh, so from then on, of course, it's anything, you know, you can deal with anything you need. But those are the people, and I might, might make a modest suggestion that you, you get the oldest ones first. Because <laughs> 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 I don't know how many of us are left, you know. But uh, that's about it. Cappy Hubbard passed away. Avram Hoffer is another one of the old-timers who isn't too well known. Well, are, are you... Yeah. Um, are you going to uh, entrust me with a couple of phone numbers that I don't oh, have sure, for some of these sure, people? Abso absolutely. They'll be, they'll, they'll be the arbiters of what they want to do. On sure. the non-scientific non side, of course, there's my cousin Alan Grinsberg. Alan is, uh, is my we cousin. We spoke yesterday. I didn't huh? know he was your cousin, but we spoke yesterday yeah. briefly, and he said, I'm, I'm just leaving the office. Of course I'll do it, but, but, yeah. but, but I'm leaving now. I'm leaving now. This so, is the uh, most cooperative, wonderful human being you've ever seen. And the other one is Ken Kesey. Ken, Ken I got yesterday. It's the first time he's ever right. talked in LSD. Yeah. I mean, in high times. Yeah. He's been quoted. He's been et cetera, yeah. et cetera. But he has never, since 1980, when yeah. high times went through a real bad period of just celebrating yeah. a lot yeah. of bad stuff, 
Yeah. And we're the new crew in the last few years. Yeah. We're trying to pull it back together. And, uh, that would be good. We need a, um, we need the best image we can get. Did so, you see 48 hours? Yes. Okay. So you can see that weird mixture of what the, the ambivalence is so evident in that film, you know. Certainly. They don't know where the hell to turn, but at least we're getting some modestly good respect. Right, and we've got, uh, and by nailing a few people uh, from yeah. the writing community, uh, like yeah. Peter Stafford, yeah. I, I've got him, and Sasha Shulgin, of course, as an yeah. inventor. Uh, Are you staying with the Americans? Uh, uh, well, there I, are about four or five in Europe that, that still are that same ilk, you know, the heavy-duty people who are associated with the origins and the first times, like uh, Lerner and... Uh, Hans Karl Lerner and uh, Bastians and, and, and Sanderson in England. Those are like the uh, the three left, uh, the lights that are left. And, uh, well, I'm I'm relying on people like you to steer me to the next group. Oh, so sure. each person well, gives me, if I get one extra number, my list is now yeah. got well, about that's 35 about it. people. So I think I'm giving exactly what you want. And I think that uh, of the Americans, I think, Fortunately, we don't have to spend too much time if there aren't that many. But uh, I think you've pretty well got a feeling for who those guys were. There's one very, very interesting man who is not really well known, but who has played an enormous role and is still alive. A man named Nicholas Bercel, B-E-R-C-E-L. And to the best of my ability, and I've known him for years, he was the first American person to use LSD. Having gone to Europe, he was a partly European extraction. And um, his distinction, among others, is that he, I think, was the first person to have that uh, substance in America and to use it. Mm-hmm. So, um, Well, I've got Howard Lotsoff, the first American arrested for LSD. Who is that? Howard Lotsoff. Is the first American arrested. <laughs> That's <laughs> he, a distinction I had. He was arrested four hours after it was made illegal. Is that right? And, uh, well, he actually but, is the fellow who now is, is working with Ibogaine. Yeah, I know, I know him. Oh, okay. I know him well. Yeah, he's called and been here. No, I, that's fine. And a gentleman named Curland, of course, who uh, runs that place in Maryland, you know. The the one in the movie that you Spring saw. Spring Grove. The, um, that uh, the Maryland uh, Psychiatric Hospital, whatever it's called. Yeah. He'd be another of the old-timers. So we're talking Curland and Humphrey Osmond, of course, and, and Laura Huxley and myself and uh, Stan, um, uh, what's his name? Groff. Groff and uh, a few, one of two others whom I might have missed, but that's about it. And our letterhead, by the way, of the Hoffman Foundation, mm-hmm. it would be very helpful. We have a list of just about everybody in the world that has some reasonable application LSD. Have you seen that? Do you, do you get our copies of the no. uh, bulletin? No. Nope. You, you don't? We're not on the list. For heaven's sake. that's a, We have to correct that right away. We publish a bulletin, and in it there's a list of everybody that's uh, really been involved. But do you get our magazine? Uh, no, I don't, know. Well, then you're the, the uh, Albert Hoffman... Uh, uh, Foundation ought to get it, so uh, sure. I'll send me yours. I'll send you mine. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll uh, put you on the list. Well, we should do that right away. What is your your address? Uh, We're at two three five two three five Park Avenue South. Park Avenue South, New York, New York. Yeah, one triple oh three. Uh, now, are you guys doing all right now? Or 
We uh, actually, we're doing very well. Yeah. It's, all, it's actually a little bit frightening. Um, we're actually doing very well. Uh, percentage of sales is, is really in the top, top, top of any magazine. Yeah. Um, actual print run is probably a quarter of a million. That's I think we're selling about 125,000. That's great. And, and I'm hope like you that we are. We're, we're trying to put the whole thing on a better footing now. We think we have a chance to really learn from the past and put out a better image of what this stuff can do and, and be reasonable about it. And I know you are doing the same. Well, we're tr- yeah. we, we had a breakthrough recently. I mean, a few breakthroughs, and yeah. you're probably getting the same, but with yeah. the interest in... Uh, or new interest, for instance, in medical marijuana, we've yeah. been getting calls from all the TV stations. You know, and when it, the same when when we did the forfeiture series recently, yeah, and uh, it was a good hard job I did, and, and that promote. You know, suddenly yeah. you're getting you're saying, wait a minute, CNN is calling us to get that series when they're putting their forfeiture. Somebody's out there saying, hey, we're paying attention a little bit. Oh, we, we feel that too, and of course you probably know all about the recent uh, least restriction to some extent of the research protocols that have been trying to be trying to get in for years. The one Grobs protocol for MMDA and Strassman's for uh, DMP and so on. So the government is looking a little bit more favorable at the research proposal, clinical research. Right. That's very important. Yeah. And then on, you know, and then the marijuana thing, the other end, um, mm-hmm. JAMA just hired, commissioned, and accepted a piece from me on medical marijuana, Good. which is uh, for them to come to high times. Uh, well, you know what I mean? So, yeah, we're well, hoping uh, that there is a change, at least a little bit more realistic view. And, of course, the Swiss experiment, which had its ups and downs, I suppose, but is still uh, limping along. You know? mm-hmm. But we hope it'll get better. You've probably been following that, I'm sure, about the legalization of Swiss uh, research in Switzerland. Yeah, we we, yeah. we keep our eye out. Keep our eye out. Uh, I, probably not as closely as you, and sometimes the research stuff doesn't too. quite, uh, you know, goes over my head. Yeah. Uh, a couple more names from the, uh, for your consideration would be uh, Lester Greenspoon at Harvard, mm-hmm. who's a wonderful man and been on drug policy work. That will, now you see, one of the things, and this I, we sent out to our membership whether we should begin to encourage a shift in policy. Our original policy was simply a, an information center. We were accumulating everything. We had all the reports and private papers and the right of all these people. But and we strictly kept it neutral. But of late, the membership and the board have been agitating toward a more uh, positive attitude about lobbying a little bit for for uh, reform and research and so on. So I think it is in the wind the feeling that it's all right to, to say, fellas, let's see if we can get this stuff back and some legitimate use and so on. So that's the, the change, the shift in attitude. We're a fairly conservative group, and we're very strongly considering taking a more active political stand. As per our membership, that's what they want us to do. Mm-hmm. And we have about a 1,000 members uh, and some interesting people involved. So I think maybe... So in any case, uh, you know Richard Schultz, you know Alex, you know Sasha Shogun, right? Yeah. And uh, Ron Siegel, who may or may not come forth, but he's uh, a bright man. He's not. He's in the middle group, the second generation. Uh, there's about three generations now. Uh, Ronald would be second. 
And the third group are a bunch of kids that we hear from occasionally, and some up there in the bridge in the conference business up in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, Andy Weil, you probably know. He's on the list, although I haven't reached him yet. Good for you. And let's see who else I could give you. And this, uh, I have most of the people right here. If you're not thinking of Europeans, Marlene de Rios. But uh, that's more with ayahuasca, no? Did she also no, experiment? No, she did work in both. She was, a, but her principal work, Betty Eisner, is a really important name. Because for the connection with LSD and uh, yeah, was the uh, and ayahuasca was uh, both Schultes and then uh, Cody oh. and Naranjo. Good, good. Uh, well, that's right. And uh, Marlene has. They they did work in both areas, but you're right. They're also she's also second generation. Betty Eisner is a name you wouldn't hear, who's first generation who did work with LSD. Lives mm-hmm. in L.A. And let's see who else. Alan, you took care of already. Willis Harmon. Do you know about him? No. Willis Harmon. Oh, he's um, head of a group called the Noetic Society. And he's on the, see even the people who are proponents that go from conservative to fairly liberal, and I would say that Willis was one of our conservative researchers, but a good man, and uh, he should at least query him as to what he would like to do. Mm-hmm. He's an important person. Um, Bo Homestead, of course, is in Europe. That didn't help. And, uh, oh, I have been in touch with him. Really? Well, well he read a paper of mine a couple of years ago, and he liked oh, it, and good. he called me. Yeah. And, uh, well, Bo's a so now I've tried good. to stay in contact with him. Very good guy. Very, and I mentioned Walter Houston Clark. You may not know too much about him, but he was a professor of religion or philosophy or whatever, and has been a, a force. He's an older man. By now. My only religious take is Rabbi Zalman Schachter. Yeah, he, he, fellow... fellow in, in, in where in San Luis Obispo? No, he he is. Uh, uh, he took two one five. Where's the two one five area? Oh, two o five. No, two one five. Oh, two one five. I think he might just be like Philadelphia or something. Yeah, no, but he took don't. it as part of the Spring Grove experiments oh, for see. healers. Oh, good. And no, religious. I, I would be of interest. No, I need some new names. So I wanted to get him as part of the part good, of the group that would say. To them, they, Tell them the foundation would very much welcome their their correspondence. Okay, that's good. We think we've about collected everybody, but we never know. Have you been in touch with Gene Houston and Masters? Those guys? No. You know, really? Uh-huh. Well, I mean, my list is fairly short. I um, think, well, I don't about know. thirty people. I know I can't really at, for yeah, this right. piece. Yeah. If everybody gets one column, that's ten. I'm pages. sure, but in any case, for your own record, if uh, Gene and uh, was a very active and very fine lady, Gene Houston, they wrote a couple of books on the subject, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the Master Gamers. I don't forget now, but they're they're okay people. Masters was his name. Uh, I met John Lilly, of course, but he's not here. He's in uh, Hawaii. A very interesting man named Arnold Mandel that goes back many, many years. But uh, I think he's too much into academia at the moment. But the name you should know, brilliant guy. He was professor at UC uh, San Diego for many years. Mm-hmm. And Dennis and Terrence McKenna, whom you probably know. Uh, Terrence 
it's unfortunately called back uh, one day to say, Peter, I'm uh, love to contribute a bit for the LSD, but uh, I'm going to Mexico now. So he he just left for Mexico, and I got the message shortly. Right. I was out when I got the message, and I got back a few hours yeah. later, and he'd already left. So. Well, Ralph Metzner, you probably got hold of. And, of course, you mentioned Claudio and uh, David Nichols. Uh, Humphrey Osmond, Ram Dass, uh, let's see. Now, Ram Dass, I put a call in, but I'm trying to get through yeah, his secretary, see. I guess, Marlene. Yeah, Ron, Ronald Sanderson, who is in England, and the chief guy there. We mentioned him. And we well, if, can you give me some of these numbers? Yeah, let's I take will. them. If I will. One more. <laughs> and David Smith. David Smith, that was his. heads the clinic up there. Sure. In San Francisco. Myron Stolaroff, who you may or may not have heard. He's Don't also know. big really good guy and contributor. And finally, down to the wire, there's uh, Charlie Tart and a guy named Youngleiter, who's UCLA, Andrew Weil, and finally Richard Jensen. So these are uh, an assorted lot, of which, as I say, about seven or eight of the people who were there from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, can I talk to you? Sure. <laughs> and the talk sure. to you is... Uh, in this, you know, series of people that uh, that I'm collecting, I'm basically, uh, because of time constraints, I, I really would love to do full-length interviews with everybody. We can. Yeah, well. So what I'm at, what I'm trying to do is just compose from the different people uh, a kind of a picture window for some of our readers, yeah. um, you know, to look through to see the experience. So, um, I mean, you you worked in psychotherapy early on. Yes, I did. Uh, you. Sorry. You have your own experience as well, LSD. Yes, and uh, so, if you would, I would just like you to talk about your talk. Tell me about your work. Tell me, tell me about the uh, the positive and/or negative aspects. Well, of the, would you the, want to do that as a telephone thing, or you want me to write something for you? Or? No, I like to do it on the phone. I'm kind of uh-huh. putting everybody on the spot. Mm-hmm. I'm, I will fax you. Yeah. Uh, a, you know, the copy before I give the copy to anybody else. Well. If you, you know what well, I mean? my experience, uh, very briefly, in a very factual way, began in April of 1954 when I first took LSD. It was new, and it was uh, the effects of it were relatively unheard of. And uh, the response of the, the the experience I had was one of a, of enormous sense of of something. Uh, uh, some aspect of reality or some sense of my perceptions that I was not able to easily access. Something was coming out of me, something where I was being able to relate to that was larger than myself, uh, some larger picture. And I uh, was, just, frankly, uh, somewhat astonished at the fact that I myself was dealing with feelings and perceptions that uh, I was hardly aware of that I had. And, uh, that was quite a shock and a surprise. And uh, from that, I vowed that I would go ahead and study this stuff. And this was in April 1954. And I, and I went on and uh, and did an experiment that involved over thou- close to a thousand people from all walks of life. And what I would say was the largest single experiment of its kind, which was to give LSD to people from uh, a variety of uh, occupations, education, uh, across section from all walks of life, and 
to give them a naturalistic experience that didn't involve uh, uh, hospital rooms and consultation rooms and testing and the like, but to put, leave them relatively free in a, uh, in a pleasant uh, environment, a nice living room and a hi-fi and a little garden, and just quietly uh, experience the medicine. And at the end of that time, to uh, as quickly as possible tell us what they what they went through. And for that end, we had uh, one or two people who sat by very quietly, and and it, when they were willing to talk, they took down everything they said, and we accumulated. Uh, we had given it finally two hundred and two thousand five hundred times. In other words, several people had repeat trips. We had those number of records of uh, reports of people who had gone through the experience in this uh, kind of naturalistic way, let's call it, or unencumbered uh, way, and told us about what they experienced. And we took those and codified them. We put them on little cards. and uh, We took the first group, the first person, and uh, took down all of the uh, features of his experience, put those on cards, and said to the second person, there are three bins. Put in the first bin the one that suits your uh, experience, if like yours. The second might be in the third, uh, not like yours at all. And after 2,000 applications, we found about 50 to 100 cards in the first bin. In other words, all of those people had, all of them had that experience. That was a way we were beginning to refine the LSD state as a, a, a thousand people from different walks of life experienced it. So our, we were just wanted to know from a phenomenologic point of view, what does this stuff do to these people and how do they talk about it without interference? And that was my cardinal experiment. In the middle of that, uh, an artist came along and said he wanted to paint something, and out of that grew what I think now is a rather well-known uh, experiments with artists in which we had uh, close to 75 to 80 artists who painted an object before and during the experience and gave us a marvelous insight into the creative process as it was evidenced by the use of LSD. So we have in our possession and had shown this around of a series of artists and painting this same thing before and during the experience. And so that was another one. And then any number of corollary things we did identical twin studies, for example, high-dose studies, uh, chronic administrations, and just trying to find out what the stuff does. All this was pure Sandoz acid at a time when it was uh, totally legal. And I was getting the, the, the material from Sandoz. And your dose was? We, uh, uh, about was 2.5 uh, micro per kilo which meant the about a, average of about 150 micrograms per person mm -hmm. of average weight and height, mm -hmm. and so that was. The, and then we caught, we took all those reports and began to analyze them for content and so on, just to give us a flavor of what this stuff was like, without touching the data. It came. The data came from the people themselves. We inferred nothing at a time of the world when there were no preconceived notions about it, and we gave them. No hints. Uh, they took it, made their statements, and, and that was it. And then we analyzed what they did and felt against their backgrounds, against their age, their their education, and the like. That was a formidable uh, experiment. 
and, and, and that basically was what I was involved in. And then uh, um, after that, they uh, sort of took all our stuff, and uh, we couldn't work after that in 1962. They came in before the bands, by the way, before the legal band. They simply came and confiscated what we had left. Huh. The FDA did that, and I think that was a move to sweep all the LSD out before they made it illegal. Mm-hmm. Because they were afraid, I think, that maybe they would hide some of it or something. Yeah. So that's how that worked. Who, um, just to, one thing that, uh, in my head, uh, yeah. your first sentence, then you took it in 54. That's Who right. turned you on to it? Well, uh, yeah, one of, I was a, a teacher at the university, and one of my students invited a, a guest, a young man, who came to hear me, and I, I had a lot of guests, the people I used to lecture a lot, and I was lecturing on, on the uh, changes of, of uh, consciousness that the primitive, quote, unquote, native people used in, in these various substances, like the magic mushroom and, and all this kamikaze. Excuse, excuse me one sec, let me get rid of this code. Yeah. Hi. Yeah, so it was, uh, he was came with some uh, with, with a medical student, and they sat, and I was lecturing at that time. I was, even before I was interested in... Uh, and the peyote and, you know, strange plants that do funny things to people's minds. And uh, uh, he said that he had something which uh, might interest me. He had been to Europe and brought back some. It wasn't that uh, difficult then to obtain it. And um, uh, that he was a gentleman who later on went on to be a, he was an engineer, but be a physician. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He wasn't in the mainstream of, uh, of uh, the drug-taking group or whatever. So your first event was in the comfort of a house? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, sure. People that you were comfortable, comfortable with. You, you bet. That's a good point. It was in, no, I knew instinctively it was my home in Lake Arrowhead, a beautiful home there, and I just sat there quietly with them, another couple, and myself and my wife, and we all experienced it, yes. It was a good surrounding. So I started <laughs> pretty good auspices, I'd say. Yeah, well, I think the right auspices, and I think it's one of the problems that oh, kids yeah, experience sure. before and now, yes. is the wrong time, wrong place. Oh, sure, and I think so much is laid on to that. And another thing that really bothered me, which was so typical of, of 48 Hours, they say, well, this guy had 500 hits of something, and he had these perceptual disorders. Right? Number one, 500's an awful lot to suddenly decide that... Uh, you're going to get hurt from one shot of LSD. And the second is nobody knew what he took because anything that you took after 1965, 66, 7, or whatever, you had to know what it was. There, there was no, for our purposes, it could have been anything that people took after that. There was no quality control. We didn't know what they took. So on a 100 talk shows I've been in, God knows how many, people will forever say to me, well, I did this and so, and it worked out. I said, when did you take it? Yeah, this and that. I said, how did you know it was pure? Well, it was told, it was told it was pure. Now, it may have been, but that's a very moot point. Bits and pieces that have trickled through. It was just stopped. All those supplies were given to the U.S. government. So that point is never made. That, you know, first of all, he has 500 experiences of what? And 500 experiences of some unknown substance, and then he has some condition. Well, good luck. <laughs> well, even, even, um, I mean, it seems to me there's, uh, with any experience, uh, yeah. not not 
not to diminish your point at all, no, but no. A, a different point is that with any experience, yeah. particularly those that take you closer to an outside edge of some sort, yeah. uh, expand you, whether it's falling in love or yeah. or deciding you want to race a car and see if you can do it. Climbing Mount Everest. Exactly. You That's are going to come out different. Absolutely. And, yeah. and it's, to me, it's not the fault of Mount Everest if you fall off. Yeah, it's right. your commitment to climb it. Well, that resulted in, you know what I'm saying? So even if it's... <clears throat> Yeah. Even if the public perception is that it's the LSD experience that pushed the occasional person over the end, mm -hmm. and I don't know very many people who, who you know, were pushed over the edge yeah. by any substance yeah. that we'd call drugs, yeah. um, uh, particularly the psychedelics. I mean, I've heard some Indians, when I do Native American church ceremony occasionally, yeah. somebody will say, oh, well, no, that's Native American church. Everybody goes crazy. And I'm like, but yeah. where are the crazy people? Do you just put well, them in a we, hole? Well, we, we know that very well. In fact, when... The, you know, long of the stuff was on the cutting room floor of 48. By the way, they spent the whole damned afternoon here, wasted my time. And, you know, I kept saying to them, you know, why this man who was a total idiot said, why did he carry Grant? Did you realize what you're doing? Well, you saw that. Yeah. And my answer is, listen, let me tell you something. LSD, like anything else, is an adventurous experience. It's a discovery experience. It's something you do at some risk. You know, not everybody's committed to go to Everest. Not everybody's going to go in the Serengeti and shoot lions or whatever you want. I said, these are risk-taking adventures. There are people courageous and adventuresome enough who are willing to do it. And when you do it, you study your risks, don't you? You don't go up into the moon, you know, naked and barefoot. You don't do any of these things. You use reasonable caution when you take any kind of adventures in risk. And as far as Cary Grant, Miller, let me tell you something. These were bold, adventurous, and curious men. Just because they were movie actors doesn't mean, in fact, in, that was why, in a sense, that a guy like Jack Nichols and so because he had the, the curiosity. These were not just peer pressure. These were people who, were under, usual, under different circumstances, would take other kinds of risks for adventure. This is point is never made, you see. These are adventuresome things. These are exciting, adventuresome possibilities, not for everybody, and to be prepared for as much as one could possibly prepare themselves for it. Mm -hmm. And those are the circumstances. And if you fall off, you know, and you're climbing barefooted, then it's shame on you. Now, I realize that uh, unless some people have restrictions, even at Everest, I hope you understand, there's so damn many people going up there poorly prepared that the government has posted an inspection station. <laughs> By the way, it's a nice metaphor, for, uh, you know, for the thing. Yeah. They don't want just, because everybody says, well, I'm going to climb Everest. So they go up there and fall down from exhaustion about three miles up, up the slope. You know, the lower. Slope. Sure, sure. Yeah. So that's what we're talking, that's what we're talking about. Now, now you could say, well, objectively, what are the dangers? Well, objectively, we could tell you. But that's nothing to say that Everest is shrouded in snow and that it has low oxygen and the like. Sure. But the rest is up to you. Mm -hmm. The on the chromosome damage, we did the three papers that the, that exposed the fact that there was no chromosome damage. They came out of my laboratory. Have you? Uh, yeah. How about the myth of the elephant with the three thousand doses? Well, it's not a myth. It actually happened. Okay, it I can't was, nail yeah, that one down. Tell me name. about it. Huh? I can't nail that one down. Tell oh, me about sure. it. Oh, sure. The guy with that who's formerly head of the UCLA uh, psychiatric department. Well, I can't think of his name at the moment. He gave it to an elephant. You'll you find it, by the way, in news clips. You can get it from, from the newspaper. Time magazine ran it about, I don't know, the appropriate number of years before. Your research people can pull it right out, by the way. They'll have no trouble. But he gave him, 
why he did this was real stupidity on my part. But he lost his one experimental subject, <laughs> the elephant. <laughs> was it? Was what was the autopsy on the elephant? Well, they claimed that it uh, died of some suffocation or some obscurity. You can't do very much with an elephant under LSD, but it was some something that equated ultimately to elephants are unusually sensitive to LSD, well, namely on the basis of one elephant. And was the dose indeed 3,000? The dose was, yeah. Oh, sure. At, at what, 150 mics, 250 mics? Uh, no, you mean how much did the elephant get? You yeah. Mean? I don't know exactly, but he got some whopping amount, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you, you know, LSD is one of the safest of all drugs. Well, uh, I can't find any other deaths. There is no, I have in all my experience, and I believe me, it's considerable, of a person who died from the physical effects of LSD. Not the mental effects, I won't tell you that, but from the physical effects. In fact, you can't say that virtually about any other medicine. You can die of overtaking aspirin, God knows what, and drinking too much water. But LSD, there is no, and by the way, there is no evidence of physical death for marijuana either, you know. Right. I know I researched that at one time. I went to Jamaica and all that kind of stuff. There just isn't. So if you're going to commit suicide, I would suggest you try something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, this is true. This is hard fact, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. This is now, what about in your own experience? Now, I'm talking about pure LSD, by the way. Let's make right, we're not talking about when somebody messes around and adds... No, I don't know. See, again, I'm going to tell you, on every count, people like you should know this and do this. When did you take it? Did you know what you were taking? You took LSD. When? Well, what was it? Who knows? Who knows? It may have been, but just who knows, you know? Mm-hmm. Really. Okay. Uh, in your own experience with consuming LSD, sure. Anything? I took it thirteen times, by the way. Thirteen times, you yeah. Took. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Any things that absolutely stand out by themselves? Any oh, personal yeah. experiences? Incredible flex range of emotions. The the things you hear. The reason I don't mention them is that they're almost banal at this time. You know, like reciting a dream. You know. It's the extraordinary wealth of associations, the kinesthesias, the, you know, the, the synesthesias, being able to transfer the sensory impressions, the, the heightened feeling of awareness, the sense of communion and, and the feeling of it being at one, unity with things, the cosmic experience, all of those. I, I deliberately avoid putting on the religious, mystical part of it. These are just phenomenal logic. These are things that happen. What what they meant, where they were going, was of second consequence. First, it was just the feeling of it, a heightened sense of being in the world, a sense of immediacy with your environment, a feeling of of narrowing the moment down to uh, that single uh, intrinsic feeling of, of communication between you and the world around you. Those kinds of things, which we've known for so many years in different ways, different expressions mm-hmm. yeah any uh and also not last but certainly not least is certain kinds of mem- access to certain feelings and memories that were in effect uh, hidden from me prior to the experience any regrets or from your personal use not your experimental use first but your personal no, no, use no fine for my personal use None whatsoever, none. 
And incidentally, I'm going to uh, digress from my, none of the old-timers, the people I trust and respect, have ever said to me one time, and by the way, I have a film of that, which was the only film of its kind, a meeting with, with these people, said to me, I'm sorry I did it, it was a folly of youth, it was this and that. Nobody, nobody has recanted, in my impression. Nobody, that doesn't mean they didn't go public, they didn't want to go public, you understand. Sure. Or that they had reservations. They certainly did, and they had very careful, conservative opinions of what how they use it, but none of them recanted. None of them said, this is a mistake, this is a folly, this is an illusion, this is meaningless, this is trivial, nothing like that. Mm -hmm. Nobody. In my, in my impression, I've been in touch with just about everybody in the world on this. You just read the forward to both uh, Storming Heaven and uh, Acid Dreams, and I was really coached and mentored both of those books, by the way. I'm sure. I'm yeah, sure. I'm Marty Lee is supposed to get back to Marty, me today. Yeah. Marty's a dear, sweet friend. and Yeah, but I only say that because I want to acquaint you with the fact that if there were such disclaimers, I certainly would be interested in those myself. Well, I don't find any. And See, I, I and I, but I, I definitely, in, in collecting this information yeah. for these for this particular well, piece, I, I want people to know. Yeah. Yeah. There are people like Ann Shilgum where she says, you know, given my preference, I'd rather not be picked up by the scruff of the neck oh, with sure. LSD. I'd rather be walked into the experience oh, by well, peyote. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and but those are just comments about how the thing should be done, not whether it should be done at all. Oh, I, I I can't find anybody who is. But I was asking you because maybe yeah. you were going to tell me a story that well, I never heard. Well, I would heard. be happy to. And I've you know, and I've dealt with some very conservative people who perhaps would never do it again, or didn't think what that did to them was that remarkable. But they never felt that it was totally something that they wouldn't do, or were sorry that they did. Mm -hmm. No. There may be a lot of people who felt that way, but had different kinds of experiences. But. Not in my estimation, though, are the people I knew. Uh, yeah. Now, let me uh, switch. By the way, this is, proposes a peculiar problem in dealing with this. I can talk to you this way, but if I talk to anybody in the media, which I have, I can assure you, any number of times, I, I've been fighting this battle pretty much for a long time, and sometimes in the dark, uh, that they will say, well, you know, you're an apologist, all you want to tell me is all these good things, and so I have to be very careful of telling them what I feel is the truth of something because it sounds too good for their purposes. Yeah. And let's hold on a second. Sure. Hi. This is Tom Lytle. Do you know Tom? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. So he was doing a story yeah, on the right. Ten Myths for sure. me. Um, By the way, it, this isn't to say that people, that it is a powerful drug. You know, I, I even as I say it, I sound kind of like a, 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 a sort of a, a Olympic disclaimer. But this is a powerful drug, and it can hurt people psychologically. It certainly can. It's just the same as we go back to Everest. You can fall off the fucking mountain. Yeah. That's all there is to it. I'm not going to make any apologies for that. It is, you've got to be prepared. You know that old adage about LSD favors the prepared mind. Yeah. But, yeah, that's the, the whole, you've got to be prepared. I, I also think that each one teach one, which is how I was brought into absolutely. it. Absolutely. And so without that in place... Then you're going to get troubles, you know. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to blame all mountains. Yeah, exactly. Good point. You know. <laughs> tell me a little about the. Uh, I'll tell you what. You are yeah. so clear, uh, so well spoken on this that yeah. I'm feeling like, hey, let's just 
you know, turn this into a, instead of, you know, reduce it to one column, let's fucking blow this up to a, uh, a the fucking feature interview. Uh, I'm not kidding. You're no, just... sharp as a tech. Yeah. But uh, uh, tell me a little about the uh, Hoffman Foundation. Oh, good. About three or four years ago, it occurred to me that out there in the world was floating all kinds of valuable stuff, memorabilia, ephemera, pieces of paper, stuff will never be collected. Nobody seems to know what quite to do with them. Everything to do with that rich, incredibly interesting period of the 60s that had to do with drugs and so on. And there was no concerted effort. The first people that did was Fitzhugh Ludlow Library to a couple of friends of mine decided right, to sure. collect these books. But nothing, they, they hung around, wound up in a warehouse and boxes. It needed money. It needed a certain kind of direction. They didn't have a container that is a, a, a political and uh, economic container to put it in. So we decided to bring together all these worthies from those years and tell them we wanted a place where this stuff could be stored for future reference. And at 100, 200 years from now, they'll be looking back and thinking, my God, what a golden age. You know, How come the people didn't uh, chronicle this more closely? Like we feel now about mesmerism and some of the stuff we wish we knew about the early days of hypnosis that we don't know about. Mm -hmm. So we were in a real important uh, era of change, and this is an incredibly important group of, uh, of you know, a lot of information out there. So I said, let's collect it. If nothing else, we'll put it together, codify it, maybe get a couple of computers, put a database out, and above all, put it in a place where it won't be harmed and will be there for posterity and for people who want to come and research, just like yourself. And so a couple, three years ago, we started, and we put together the advisory board and so on, collected some money, and now have a sizable collection of these things codified through the, the various uh, computer stuff we have and so on. So we were basically a repository of information. And to that end, a couple of people have called us like, the Supreme Court, one of the cases wanted some information which we gave them. We became an amicus curiae, or sometimes we'll have people come because they've been guided by, hey, we don't know where else to find this stuff. The libraries are remarkably short of, of material, by the way. The few, even the, the prestigious UCLA Medical Library, there are a few threadbare, you know, stain-worn copies of these stuff, and that's all there are. You can't get hold of it. Sure, there are private libraries where people have them, but there are very little in the in the public libraries. So we have that information, and essentially that's where we were. But it wasn't a very, it was kind of a static thing. So we didn't, you know, we couldn't make, people aren't going to give that much money to a library, whatever, even though they see the value of it. So we limped along, managing, however, to hold our own. And, you know, and we put out a few a newsletter and some reports and, reprints for sale and that kind of thing. And the nail, the, the group wants to go a little more uh, active. And they say, fine, we'll change the purposes which we originally set down, and let's try to uh, pump, pump for, uh, for some uh, change in the laws. And I said, well, we'll look at our charter, we'll see whether we can do it, and that's precisely where we are right now, looking at that change. Mm -hmm. We've told the delegation, they all want to do it. <laughs> I think it's the wind. I think the tides are changing. You know, after 20 years after I did my work, I went virtually underground. I'm not the best known of the people of this group that you talk with. But I, because one of the things I did, I was a teacher, and I had other research projects, really uh, uh, 
big ones that I was involved in. And so I took everything. I must confess, I was a little put off by when they came in and confiscated my stock and stuff. It, they sort of preemptorily, you know. And then I put everything away and said, you know, screw it. I'll just keep it under undercover, and uh, uh, that's it. So for years, that stuff was untouched. I never looked at it, never did a thing with it. Did you and just then, teach during that time? Oh, yeah. I was teaching. I did research. I was. Uh, I taught several couple thousand medical students and residents and God knows what. In what, uh, what field? Psychiatry. Uh-huh. I was a professor of psychiatry at UCI, University of California at Irvine. Mm-hmm. And so I did all that and uh, had a lot of good, interesting uh, research projects on uh, our team was one of the first that found a biological marker in homosexuality, for example. We did work on uh, uh, premenstrual depression, which is another subject that's <laughs> a little off the track from LSD, and all sorts of things. So we were working along those lines. And then in 19, I guess it was middle to late 70s, uh, there was a little activity up north, I think. Uh, in that case, Peter Stafford and his group and Peter's an odd fellow, and he uh, invited Albert to come, and there was a sort of renaissance, a, a sort of a re-sparking of this whole thing. And uh, I began to feel that maybe it was time that we took some of the wraps off. But it had an incubation period, about a 20-year incubation period, a little less, maybe. And then when UCLA wanted me to talk on creativity, I said, well, I'll do it on condition that you let me uh, mention these horrendous drugs, you know, these drugs, will, and, and I may have mentioned them favorably. Oh, well, we'll have to think about it. And then they met, called me back and said it was okay. And when that happened, I said, well, the light is beginning to dawn again. Went there, lectured that evening on the use of LSD and creativity, and got a standing ovation, and I realized that maybe some of the old rancor and the old finger-pointing and blame and so on had begun to disappear. That was a great moment for me, by the way. Yeah, they were young kids, and so I thought maybe the new generation isn't carrying some of that. Now, look, I'd like to make my point clear that if I were in high place in government, I would tell you, I would close it down, too. Just want you to know, I'd close the damn thing down. It was just getting crazy. It was getting crazy. We, we stepped into something we knew nothing about. The government was puzzled. Everybody was. Nobody expected the damn thing to leak into the streets the way it did, create havoc and so on. Uh, no, but there were no provisions made for how to take it, what to do with it. It ran willy-nilly, you know. And uh, I call it a kind of firestorm of this stuff. And what happened eventually is that, uh, you know, they, they dug their own grave, just like I'm afraid it'll happen now with their raves and all that shit, you know. It'll just... Uh, so there's a line between even the most liberal person that says, see, this is a wonderful thing, and someone says, yeah, but if they open the trail to Everest and the people start falling off the mountain, then, you know, we can't have that, you know. And then the legitimate climbers, they won't have a shot at it. Right. You know? So that's that's what it is. So I want you to know, I, I'm not sanctioning. That's where uh, Tim and I sort of part. If you read flashbacks, he has a whole chapter on me there where we first met. He came here because I was doing the work and wanted me to be his uh, research director. And at that point, uh, I simply had many, too many other things to do. And so he went down to Zihuatanejo, and I didn't go. I just felt that, uh, not because of anything personal with Tim, but I simply couldn't get involved in that at that time, the way 
they were setting it up. Mm-hmm. So in any case, all I'm saying is that the there were uh, 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 I don't hate the word abuses, but there were they were sort of mismanaging this thing or mishandling it, which anyone would agree, really. That if you take two hundred mics and get in your car, you know, and get down and see a Grateful Dead concert, and then go careening through the streets, uh, you know with a couple of belts of booze, that isn't exactly the most uh, social situation. No, but don't you think some of that is is the fault, or or could some of the fault for that be laid on the, uh, let's say, the educational system? Oh, absolutely. I which, mean, by would, just telling us, yeah. don't use it, oh, denies sure. us the oh, information. Oh, of course, well, but you see, that, that's, after the, that's after the fact, you see. That's post hoc, because at that time, you know, who would say, what are you going to educate people to do? Uh, they get out and say, hey, fellas, this is the right way to take LSD, your voice would be drowned by people saying, turn on, tune in, and drop out, you know. Mm-hmm. There was a tremendous wave of, of, of anti-establishment, freedom-oriented behavior that said, we know what to do, fellas. We've, we've listened to you guys long enough. We, we got something finally we can do ourselves, you know. <laughs> yeah. So if you were, doing, I mean, if you were the educator now writing the pamphlet, what would be your... At that time, you mean? No, right oh. now, with the second wave, oh, I what would, would be say, your five things? Uh, well, gee, I could write the damn thing. I could write a five, two or three wonderful pages. Look, if you got to take it, or got to, you know, if you want to take it, heck, it's no more than saying if you're going to ride this airplane, make sure you check one, two, three, four out, or, otherwise you'll fall to the ground. I mean, I could write a, a wonderful paper that wouldn't be biased at all, that would simply say, these are the dangers, these are the things you look for, these are the advantages, this is what you have to do. Respect it, it'll respect you. You don't respect it, you tweak the dragon's nose, he's going to bite you. You know, he's not going to hang around, he'll bite you. The Indians knew that. The Indians, when I did my work, you know, on chromosome damage among the Weechaw Indians, which was a landmark paper, by the way, we went down there and took blood samples of the Weechaw, the first time this was ever done. It took me two years to establish contact with the people of the tribe and the Mexican government, and then flew up the samples to City of Hope, where they did chromosome study. And so, during that time... And found none? We found there was no, that was the landmark, it found no chromosomal breaks. And, and all that bullshit was, uh, well, I'll call it, was people looking for what they were looking for. Mm-hmm. But when we got, but what I could tell you is that I would say to people, you know, there's a right way and wrong way of doing this from old timers who are not trying to steal your precious incentives and their spontaneity away from you. But these are, you want to have a good trip, this is how to do it. You know, or at least have a, a reasonably secure one. Well, and, what, would, what would some? What would they be? Well, you the set the setting. You you already pre you almost preempted me on that by telling me that you want a nice home or a place that's familiar to you, a place where you have a, some degree of security and and a feeling of of of, uh, of personal connection, and you certainly want to be in a place where you could option be in nature if you wanted to, or have available music. Music is an extremely important adjunct to experience, or music, and have around you, if necessary, one person who is familiar with the experience, who you can somehow feel some sense of security or camaraderie with, and, and have that person available to you at your particular uh, request. And these are just minimal sort of requirements, and to go into the experience with the knowledge that uh, uh, you're facing some uh, rather um, 
remarkable and unusual uh, experiences. Uh, and we think that in the Eleusinian mysteries in Athens, where the damn population of Athens poured through the, uh, the mysteries of Eleusis for maybe five, six hundred years, where they had these experiences, we assume, if you read Hoffman's books, that they may have been given a potion of some kind. We could find in that a wonderful model for the way Sid Cohen and I and the other bellwethers of this movement were thought about, like Huxley and, and, and Alan Watts, by the way, who was all, all of these people were subjects of mine, and to say, what would the be the best thing? How could we have an ideal setting for people to go and have this as a quiet or, or reflective experience or whatever you wanted that would be free of potential harm and danger to the person? And if we look at the Eleusinian setup, the best we know about it through Alcibiades, who was one of the uh, Roman generals at the time, who bespoke, shouldn't have bespoken himself, but he did, uh, because it was considered the bad form to talk about the history. I believe he's a Greek general. In any case, he uh, the setting was one of, of serenity, calm, peacefulness, and I think there may have been music, for all I know. But it's very much the same. And... Uh, that these are some of the considerations. Well, I certainly yeah. find uh, with yeah. my work in ayahuasca in the jungle yeah. that uh, yeah. people often say, I've, I've, done, I've had several experiences, and yeah. people often say, well, can I pay you to come? And my, I always tell them no. Yeah. You know, first of all, just because I think that's the wrong yeah. way. Yeah. I think when they're called, they'll find their way. Sure. And But secondly, yeah. I, I, sometimes people tell me, well, I flew to Iquitos and I found this, you know, Curandero that yeah. afternoon and had ayahuasca and yeah, I flew yeah. back two days later because it's yeah. a horrible place. Yeah. And my feeling is like, what a strange way to take it. Oh, sure. My yeah. guy is like a couple of days on the river, then another little day yeah. in the canoe. Oh, yeah. Then I get there and he tells me I need a new floor, my hut, <laughs> I'm so <laughs> old. Yeah, so you, you cut a floor, you know, you make yeah. a floor for a day and yeah. then he says, oh, my wife, you know, she yeah. needs the vegetables and then he says you look fat take a day we don't eat for a couple of days yeah. so here's a piece of fish and yeah. you know and then you know five days into it suddenly he's whacking the ayahuasca in the morning yeah. you know and that night after an additional yeah. day fast yeah. you sit and he you know and administers and to me the experiences have been yeah. Extraordinary, and and they one is more extraordinary than oh, the yeah. next. But, but you know all that many times he won't even serve it to me. You know all that's been corrupted too by the people pouring into Iquitos and all that and getting their hit and running back, as you said. And a lot of the Iascaros, the the guys who give it, uh, are some of them are unscrupulous enough to take advantage of that too. Well, so well, well I mean, it, that whole thing. it's very you know that yeah. the American Express now yeah. includes an ayahuasca trip <laughs> on, on its uh, you know in the well, Iquitos portion. It but, was ever uh, thus, wasn't it, to take a ritual or some kind of ceremony and turn it into a fast food process? So, what can I tell you? You know, it's nothing. It's, we go to we our television is an undigested gob of you know stuff and so on. So we're bound and determined to. I guess the word is abuse it or mishandle it or whatever. You know. So well, you hope that the fad fades out. Yeah, and that those people yeah. who are somewhat yeah. sincere will continue to work. Yeah. You just the, the unfortunate part is to watch some of the people who are sincere end up in jail for twenty, thirty years. Oh, this is terrible. That, that another thing, though, that I'd like to point out. I think that whole experiment in the sixties had some salutary value in that we shook down an awful lot of things, and a lot of things happened. And my estimation is that at least ten million people have had LSD at least one time, frankly, in the world. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. That's a figure that's 
maybe stand a lot of scrutiny, but uh, there've been if you count the number of people who, uh, you know that were at the big Iraq festival, how many were there? In Woodstock? Yeah, half a million, right? right. Now let's say at least half of those people had electricity. Well, I was one of them. <laughs> so already the figures are not so outrageous, right? And so in any case, uh, yeah, what we're dealing with is. Uh, the fact that there are people who uh, have gone through the experience and constitute a, a kind of a, a group of fairly level-headed people at this point who come to us at the foundation. And this is extremely interesting. There are people I meet, for example, uh, what, what do they call those baby boomers and so on, who come well-to-do people and lawyers and doctors and people in middle life and so on, and who know, who just know, and who are, who support us sometimes clandestinely, surreptitiously, but who have a feeling for it, and I think they lend the kind of basic uh, uh, stability to the situation. Because even as the kids get nuttier these days, it's not as nutty as it used to be. There's a different feeling about the excessive amounts of LSD, which people are not taking, by the way, like they used to. They take it, but they're not. Now I may be just you know, talking through my hat, but I, I would like to believe that. Well, that I we had a shakedown cruise in the 60s. I recently did a, somebody from Houston Post or something called me at iTimes to ask about the LSD, and I had said, it seemed to me that instead of saying that the people who are making it are trying to poison the kids, the yeah. point should be made, the people who are manufacturing it are manufacturing 50 and 100 mic doses, which are very mild and relatively very controllable, compared to 250 or 350 my kids that we were eating sometimes back then yeah so you know for if if uh, maybe maybe somebody would have said well it's say 250 mics and you eat three of them over the course of a 12 or 14 hour period yeah. Yeah. that's 750 you'd have to eat sometimes you know seven or 15 yeah so uh, it seems to me those yeah. manufacturers are showing a great deal of restraint and respect yeah and also I think the kids are somehow getting that information somewhere that you don't have to beat it to death, or you don't have to. Like in the early days, it was like, who's going to take the most, you know, and do the craziest things? And some of that, I think, is worn off a little bit. Some of that uh, sense of the reckless, uh, for its own sake, I think, is worn off. I'd like to believe that in any case. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's been kind of a, there's been a surfacing, uh, kind of a an infrastructure of how this, of all the abuses, the things that were used in, somehow more stable kind of feeling about it has incurred. That may not be true in the longer run, but we'll soon see how it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So these are some of the, you know, my recollections. And of course, I don't mention the counterculture, which had a whole life of its own and impinged on this in every which way. We're still wondering about that. Whether did we, were we the catalyst for the counterculture? Was the counterculture somehow encouraged the advent of LSD use and back and forth and and so on. So my cousin would be a better person to address himself to that, I think, mm -hmm. and so on. But uh, my own role is it was a rich and wonderful and exciting time. It was a time of change and uh, internal change. It was a time of being able to see the world in a way that allowed you for much greater tolerance for ambiguities, much greater. It was a time when people began to see that what was laid down for them as obligatory reality was not obligatory. If it becomes legal to, or with the constraints looking like they're dropping, no. 
would you begin new experimentation? Well, I'm getting on, you know, I'm 75. And uh, I would, what I see myself as a kind of uh, elder statesman, I would be happy. That's why I was a little miffed about the, about the Swiss, who are younger people, who went in and started their experimentation without consulting the elder statesmen. They should have had three or four of the old timers get together and say, hey, fellas, we went through this. We're going to save you a lot of hardship. I don't care how smart you are. Yeah. And they didn't do it, and they paid a price for it. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's what the role I see myself in. It's a sort of a, a gentle, reasonable, guiding hand on it. Mm-hmm. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. So, for any future historians who may be listening to this podcast, now you have quite a litany of some of the more notable early pioneers of psychedelic research right from the mouth of someone who is there. And while all of these names and talk of the old days may not be of great interest to some of our fellow saloners, I still think that it's important to keep in mind, the next time you drop a few tabs of acid, that there actually is a lineage of use of that sacred sacrament that can be traced directly back to the very first time that a human being ingested that magical substance. And wouldn't it be lovely if we were able to trace a similar lineage with something like ayahuasca? My point being that there's a vast difference in the length of time that humans have been using certain substances to launch them on psychedelic journeys compared with uh, some of the newer ones. With ayahuasca, uh, you'd have to go back several thousand years to discover the names of the early pioneers with that elixir. And for cannabis, I'm told that archaeologists have discovered evidence suggesting that it, well, it was used as far back as the Stone Age. (laughs) Maybe it was the Stone Age, huh? (laughs) So uh, put that in your pipe and smoke it if you're one of those misinformed prohibitionists. Uh, You just say no people. Uh, Actually, none of them ever listened to the salon, so uh, all I can say is that maybe putting a little cannabis in a prohibitioner's pipe is... uh, possibly exactly what they could use to turn them into more civilized humans. But I digress again. Now, one of the other things I I really feel I should mention about Oscar was that he was also a regular attendee at Kathleen's great salon that she hosted in Venice Beach for over seven years. And as you've heard me say before, uh, well, those sessions turned out to be one of the main places on earth that were frequented during those years by many of our most important psychedelic elders and uh, youngers and uh, I guess all of us in-betweeners. It was a really wonderful place to gather each month and if you've heard or read my novel, The Genesis Generation, you'll recognize uh, Kathleen's Salon as the place where I set the scene in Chapter 9, which is titled Caitlin's Salon. And a final comment about the real thing, uh, Kathleen's Salon, is uh, the interesting little fact that for the first few years, that monthly event was officially known as the Albert Hoffman Foundation Monthly Potluck Dinner, which uh, also accounts for the appearance each month by so many notables in the psychedelic community. Now, as much as I'd like to continue down memory lane and talk about some of the great evenings at Kathleen's, there are two more things that I want to cover before letting you get on with your life outside of the salon. The first thing uh, is that I've been receiving messages from some of our fellow saloners regarding what the corporate media is calling, and I quote, the Hacker Collective Anonymous. 
And uh, <laughs> I realize that this is way off topic here in the salon, but it seems to be on a lot of minds these days, and so I thought that I should let you know where I stand on this topic. First of all, uh, I don't think of Anonymous as a collective, uh, particularly a hacker collective. To me, Anonymous is an idea, and I'll tell you why I think that. Of all the actions that are being attributed to Anonymous, the one that has caused, uh, by far, the most significant impact on the establishment is when they called for people to drop their PayPal accounts. As you already know, uh, that call resulted in tens of thousands of people closing their accounts and ultimately costing PayPal's parent company to lose around a billion dollars in stock value. Now, I may be wrong, but it seems to me that not very many of those 40,000 people who responded to that call are actually hackers. So, with that in mind, uh, now let's look at what's been going on with the riots in the UK and the BART protests in San Francisco for just two examples. Although I've taken some flack from people for posting articles on my personal blog that explore the root causes of the rioting in England, and I agree that from appearances most of what took place there was criminal activity, I still stand by my position that nonetheless the so-called gentlemen who have control of power in the UK should be looking at the causes lurking behind this activity and not just try to fob it off as the work of gangs fueled by social media. As one young man over there put it, sure, it's uh, much better to have peaceful protests, but until there were riots, the establishment-owned media never even bothered to come to their neighborhoods and look into the abysmal conditions that the government cutbacks have caused. The root of the problem, uh, at least as I see it from this great distance, lie not in the gangs and the internet, but lie squarely with the government of the country and the dismissal of the working class by the wealthy establishment, who seem to lack all traces of empathy for those who weren't so fortunate as to be born into the ruling class like themselves. Now, back over here in the States, we see that the protest over the murder by the police of a homeless man at a San Francisco BART station has been twisted into a discussion about anonymous and social media. And don't get me wrong, I think that uh, most of what Anonymous has done is splendid. But I really don't understand how hacking into the BART website and publicizing the names and personal information of BART passengers gets anyone anywhere. In fact, I'm sure that some of those people whose personal information was made public also think of themselves as part of the idea we call Anonymous. My point being uh, that if you consider yourself to be in tune with Anonymous, then I think it's even more important to become well-informed about what the politicians and banksters are doing to our world. But don't punish or irritate other working-class people like us, like you and me. It's the corporations and governments who are the bad guys here, not the law enforcement people, not the military, and not the average person who is working in a shop for a living or who is just trying to take a subway home after a long day at work. That's all, you know, just use your head and always keep in mind that it's far better to do something completely within the law like canceling your PayPal account or boycotting a particular corporation. That's always going to be a lot more effective than doing something that's just going to strengthen the already too strong police states that uh, most of us are living in today. And other than that, I'm going to try to keep my comments about these issues out of these podcasts, uh, simply because there's already enough chatter about this uh, coming from all other directions. But in the interest of full disclosure, uh, although I am fully in tune with the idea we call anonymous, 
I have to admit that I was not one of the great people who dropped their PayPal accounts uh, simply because, uh, even though the amount that comes through my account is small, it still amounts to enough to supplement my Social Security check and allow me a few luxuries uh, like wine and cannabis. So, I guess the bottom line is that while I can talk the talk, I don't always walk the walk. But my deepest respects go to those who do it uh, so much better than me. However, uh, I'm not completely a lost cause yet. So, if you are at the 2012 Burning Man Festival next year and you see some old guy wearing a Guy Fawkes mask, well, please join him in chanting, We are anonymous. We are a legion. We do not forgive. We do not forget. Expect us. But uh, even before then, you can expect me, uh, without the mask, on Orcas Island, Washington, which happens to be my very favorite place on all the earth. As you know, uh, I'm planning on joining Bruce Damer for a workshop there, and also for one uh, next June 15th through the 17th at Esalen Institute, and uh, finally for the 2012 Burning Man Festival. Now, outside of those three events, my current plan is to uh, make them my final personal appearances. At the Burning Man event, I'll be celebrating my 70th birthday, and uh, that seems to me to be a good time to end my days of traveling around and speaking. Not that I've uh, done much of it lately anyway. And the truth is that I'm feeling a little bit worn out and can think of nothing more enjoyable than being able to hibernate here in the salon and enjoy my old age playing with grandchildren. I am, however, uh, greatly looking forward to getting to meet a few more of our fellow slaughters in person uh, one last time. And so if you are somewhere not too far from Orcas Island this October 1st, well, I hope to see you there. And for more information about that event, you can go to www.somaticrevolution.com. That's S-O-M-A-T-I-C-R-E-V-O-L-U-T-I-O-N, somaticrevolution.com where you can purchase a ticket to that Friday, Saturday, and Sunday event for only $45, part of which will be sent on to Sasha Shulgin to help with some of his health care expenses. Well, that's going to have to do it for now, and so I'll close today's podcast once again by reminding you that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. And if you're interested in some of the stories that uh, may or may not have led you and me to where we are sharing this moment together right now, uh, well, you can read a few of them in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available in Kindle and other ebook formats, as well as a pay-what-you-can audiobook read by me. And you can find out more about that at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>